Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 78 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, I speak to Roger Cole. Roger is an internationally recognized, certified Iyengar teacher. He was trained at the Iyengar Institutes in San Francisco and Pune, India. He's been teaching since 1975. Roger's also an accomplished scientist, and he was educated at Stanford University and the University of California with specialties in the science of relaxation, sleep, and circadian rhythms. I had the opportunity to work with Roger for several years when I edited his anatomy column at Yoga Journal, and I learned so much from him. I have always appreciated his meticulous and inquisitive approach to this practice and how he brings a scientist's mind to this metaphysical practice. It's pretty fascinating. And when I thought about having him on the show, I thought I would ask him about the intersection of yoga and sleep science. But then I learned that recently he has connected this concept of the baroreflex and how it has an effect on your brain and helps your brain relax in restorative yoga poses. So that's the core of this conversation. We talk about this reflex, which is a well-known reflex, but how you can best utilize it in your yoga practice to help you get restorative benefits from your restorative poses. I also ask him about learning from directly from Mr. Yangar and there was a time when Roger actually got to take Mr. Yangar to a lab and study his breath and so he has some interesting anecdotes about that and then also if you enjoyed the interview definitely check out the show notes page roger was kind enough to share a video of mr yangar demonstrating his inhalation and exhalation which he refers to in the conversation and then also photos of roger doing shoulder stand the way that he likes to do it with a lot of props and then a very simple propping of setu banda supported setu banda so the show notes page is as always at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 78. I'm also going to try to dig up something about the nervous system and the relaxation response. I'll be able to find something out there on the internet that I think that I think is a good source and can kind of break that down for you a little bit more if that's new information for you. Okay, onward with the interview. So I have scour the internet and I have yet to find the story of how and when you started practicing yoga. So I'd love to start there. I have practiced yoga since I was 17 years old. That's when I date my yoga career starting. And it began when I read a book on Aikido, the the Japanese martial art, kind of peaceful martial art. And in the book, there was an exercise in which you kneel in a pose, which I would now call virasana. You focus on your area below your lower abdomen, below your navel, and breathe in for 20 seconds, hold the breath for 20 seconds, breathe out for 20 seconds. And just doing that one exercise was really profound for me. I did it for a while. It was difficult, of course, at first. And I found that it really made a huge difference in my life. So I got this idea that I could change the way I feel by doing something physical with my body. Hmm. I'd been a gymnast before, and I'd always kind of like to stand on my head as a little kid and so on. But this was the first time I ever thought of it as a systematic practice to use changes in the body to create a change in consciousness. And that was really fascinating to me. That's amazing that you were able to do that on your own. 
as a 17-year-old? It just worked out. It was also uh, sort of the time, the era, this was in the early 1970s, and it was an era when people of my age were exploring consciousness and trying to learn new things. So it fit right in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then how did you go from practicing solo like that to actually finding a class? Well, that took a long time. I practiced on my own for four years, I think, or five, I can't remember exactly. But my first practice was in the, the book by Ram Das, Be Here Now. Somewhere in the middle of that crazy book, there is a, <laughs> a sun salutation sequence. And that was the first real formal yoga asana I ever did. And after that, I would have found books here and there and practiced poses and tried different things. I didn't take my first class until uh, 1978 when I was very fortunate to take a class with my first teacher, who was Elise Miller. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, my fabulous Iyengar teacher. from uh, She was teaching uh, a class. I was a student at Stanford at the time, and she was teaching a class Stanford through the YMCA, and I took it. Never looked back. Yeah, I worked a lot with Elise. I love her. And she's still in Palo Alto. She's still in the same place. That's great. I teach at her studio from time to time, yeah. And so you became an Iyengar yoga student, and you're still an Iyengar yoga practitioner and teacher, right? That's right. And you even spent time with Mr. Iyengar years ago. So one thing that you articulate really well is that his emphasis on alignment is often misunderstood and that people can think that that the alignment was simply to achieve the pose. Can you talk about another interpretation of focusing so much on alignment? Can you talk about what you've taken away from his approach? Absolutely, yes. It, it's, a, it's a really big point because uh, nowadays we have what people call alignment-based yoga, which is really inspired by Iyengar's focus on alignment. And I think it got far away from what he originally intended. Yoga is about creating or reaching a state of stillness of mind, this quiet state of consciousness. And Iyengar liked to point out that equanimity is yoga. That is a line from the Bhagavad Gita. And he says alignment is a technique for equanimity. And so these are all, you know, fine words, but it really translates into the experience. And unless you have the experience of what that means, it doesn't mean much. But anyone, you know, just sitting uh, or standing right now could experience that. So if, if you sit and you bring your pelvis upright and you, or stand, bring your spine upright and find a point of balance where you're not leaning forward, not leaning backward, but just that place in the middle, you will find that your bone structure through its alignment with gravity supports you. And as soon as that happens, a lot of muscles let go because they're no longer necessary to keep you from falling. You're stable on your bone structure. And that muscular relaxation means that the nerves that control those muscles can stop firing so many signals, which means that your nervous system literally quiets down. Hmm. So just by finding physical balance, you immediately experience more stillness of mind. And so Iyengar's focus on alignment was always oriented toward an outcome, toward a goal, which is finding this, this stillness of mind. Hmm. So in his, in his own practice, he would get into these poses, and each pose would create an experience. And then in trying to get people to have the experience, he would, all he could point to was, you know, put your foot here, turn your knee that way, pull this way, in order to recreate the experience he had. Hmm. But sometimes people take away the alignment instructions as the goal. 
So when he would insist that the leg be in a certain place or something like that, it was to create some sort of physical effect that would affect your mind. Mm. That's what he meant when he said alignment is equanimity. Mm. I can remember a couple years ago, Jason is one of those quote unquote alignment based teachers. And I can remember someone talking to me after his class and saying, you know, I really love Jason's class because it's just, it's not spiritual. You know, it's just, it's just alignment and it's really just focused on the poses. And I took it in the spirit with which this person meant that comment. I mean, he, he was, he was paying him a compliment, but I sort of thought, oh shoot, (laughs) he doesn't realize that for Jason, like the alignment is also a point of concentration to help still your mind. You know, it's like, absolutely. you know, if you are thinking about the skin on your inner knee for the first time in your life, your mind is going to really focus on that. Um, there's details that you just never think about until you come into a yoga class like that. So that's a really good point. And that's, that's another aspect of practicing Iyengar method of paying attention to, to exactly what you're doing, because it really gets to the same point. While you're doing this practice, it creates a state of mind. And part of that state of mind is from the, the focused attention. And that's how it works. It's, that's how the neuro, neurology of it works. That's how the brain works. When you're focusing on something that's happening at the present moment, as opposed to daydreaming about the past or the future, you're in a different neural state. Your brain's mm-hmm. in a different state. And, it, and it's the state of yoga gets at that. So using alignment as a vehicle for concentration is just as valid as using a mantra or a candle flame but it has the added benefit of having a physical outcome that feeds back on your state of consciousness. Yeah, I love it. It's such just such, such a brilliant system and loop, as you said. You know, you mentioned that you went to Stanford and then you also did graduate work. At what point did you realize that you could merge your scientific background to study yoga? That came about gradually and it was sort of studying yoga with science was in the grab bag of of studying how science can make cool things happen. You know, I was always interested in science as a kid. And I remember when I was about 10, I read a book called The Mind, and it had things like optical illusions and sensory deprivation experiments and things in it that explained how the brain worked and how you could try these little tricks and get really cool effects. And so yoga to me is this this very rich treasury of techniques and practices that you can do yourself. You don't need much equipment, if any. And you get these wonderful immediate rewards from it, the effects on how how you feel and how you breathe and, and everything. And so the idea that the physical body and the practice could could create these experiences was what got me into it. Then as I studied to be a scientist, I was interested in, in herbs and I was interested in breathing and I was interested in physical posture and and uh, the effects of light on the body, all these physical things. But yoga was the most practical. Yoga was the thing that it was already done. People had done all this work for more than, you know, for a couple of thousand years on this. I just felt that it was part of my study. I grew up studying science and yoga more or less in parallel, especially once I got to graduate school. Hmm. So all this work had been done for thousands of years, but it seems like you were among the first people to bring it into a Western lab setting. Is that right? I mean, I think that's amazing that you had that, that you made that connection. Well, yes, I did make the connection, although I wasn't by any means, there were certainly precedents. And the generation before me, there were people who did 
things along these lines, even two generations before. So I was not the inventor. But, you know, what happened was I was practicing yoga and I was studying the body and, and the mind, both because I was a student in health psychology and first of all, in just plain psychology at Stanford and then health psychology and also in human biology. These were the disciplines I was studying. So I was always interested in how the body worked. And so it was just natural that when I was studying yoga, practicing yoga, and feeling these experiences, I wondered, why is it that mm. it feels this way? Mm-hmm. Why, why does it do this special thing? Which is unexpected if you just look at it on the surface. Even, right. even the anatomy, you know, you take a pose like Uttita Trikonasana, triangle pose, and if you do it with the right alignment, it stretches your inner thigh. Now, as a person, when I started yoga with no knowledge of anatomy, I wouldn't have looked at that position and said, oh, my inner thigh is going to stretch when I do this. Mm-hmm. Now, having studied the anatomy, it's quite obvious why you feel that. And it's also obvious why if you don't do the pose with the, with the correct alignment, you don't get that effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's, it starts out with some very concrete things that you can literally point to and feel with your fingers to some extent. And then it, it moves on to the more subtle scientific things that you have to use instruments to measure. So you brought Mr. Yangar to a lab and you in the 70s, right? In the late 70s? And you it, did, it was the early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah, early 80s, yeah. Okay, so yeah. that made him, he was, that would have made him around six in his 60s? He was about 65, I think. Okay. 1984, yeah. 1984. And it was, was it at UCSF? No, it was, this was at San Francisco General Hospital. So Iyengar came to uh, lead the first international Iyengar Yoga Convention in San Francisco. It was a big event, maybe 800 people attended. I was on the committee, I was the medical supervisor um, committee that organized the convention. And so as part of the the week or or so of events, a group of us led by me took uh, Mr. Iyengar over to San Francisco General to the pulmonary function laboratory where they did the tests that they do to test people's breathing because we knew he had this special pranayama and this incredible power of breathing. Actually, it was a mixed result because the things that those pulmonary tests test are not necessarily the things that Iyengar does. So for example, one of the tests, they they say, breathe in as much air as you can and then breathe it out as fast as you can through this little tube. Oh yeah, I've done that before. Yeah. And they want the forced expiratory volume. So the idea is you get as much air out as you can. And after, I can't remember, two seconds or three seconds, they say, okay, how much air went out in this number of seconds? Well, in pranayama, you breathe, you release the air slowly. And so Iyengar was not necessarily, I'm not sure if he quite got the instructions. So those results were somewhat unremarkable. I mean, he did fine, but there was nothing special about it. Mm-hmm. Where it came out special was uh, when they looked at what's called vital capacity. And that's essentially what's the total amount of air that your lungs can hold? And they have a specific way of testing that. And his vital capacity was not large compared to the average person, but large compared for, for his age. It was, mm-hmm. He had the vital capacity of someone who would be in, in their 20s, and he was 65. Wow. So it was clear that you know he had something special that could be measured scientifically. But you know, had we had a chance to do it again, I would have devised other tests that would have tested things that you normally don't test. So a great example is on that same trip, Mr. Iyengar did a demonstration at Davies Symphony Hall in San Francisco. It was an asana demonstration mostly, but during the talk, he he did one pranayama demo. He said, okay, now I'm going to inhale. And he made the ujjayi sound in the microphone very loud and very clear so you could hear it. And he breathed in and he breathed in and he breathed in and this inhalation just seemed to go forever. 
Um, I've tried to sit and follow that breath and tried to breathe in that long, and I, I can't do it uh-huh. to this day. And he was just standing there talking casually and just just busted this thing out. He just did it. Yeah. And the breath, and, and it's not just the length of it, but the clarity of it and the smoothness of it and the and the strength of it. It was loud. Uh-huh. And then he did sort of a similar thing with the exhalation. So he inhales forever, and then he says, okay, that was the inhalation. <laughs> and then, then he pauses and says a few words. He's now the exhalation. He does a, a long exhalation. So that does not get picked up in these pulmonary tests. But clearly, he had a lot of control of his breath. And because, uh, as he says, even in this little video, which you can see on YouTube, by the way, you can look up BKS Iyengar Pranayama on YouTube, and you'll find this very short video that shows him doing this. He says something like, something he's quoting from Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the, I can't remember, something about the breath being the master of the mind and so on. So he's, he's not just talking about how long can I exhale or inhale? Right. Talking about how that affects your mind. And this gets back to that alignment thing we were talking about before. It's not, oh, wow, look how long I can inhale. or look how long I can exhale. It's if you do this, it creates an incredibly special state of mind that, that I can't even describe. So just I can describe the practice. Just breathe in smoothly for forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Breathe out smoothly forever. And your mind will experience the difference. And that's exactly where I started yoga with these trying to do these long inhalations and exhalations. So, so that's uh, very special to me to, to yeah. Uh, recall that experience. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing that, like you said, even though the laboratory setting wasn't exactly set up to measure what he had been working on for all those years, it's still amazing that, that he measured to be with, you know, like a 20-year-old or in his 20s. Yes, yes. It kind of speaks to, you know, he lived a long, relatively healthy life. And it kind of speaks to that, concept of health span. You know, it's, it's not just about living longer. It's not just about how long you can breathe in and breathe out, but it's about like extending your period of well-being and healthiness and hardiness throughout your life. Like he seemed forever hardy to me. You know, his testimony to that, as I think about it now, is uh, he was 65 uh, at that time and he did this tremendous asana demonstration and he ran around with all this energy. I just this year turned 60. Oh, you did? And Congratulations. I, yeah. Thank you, but I can't imagine doing the stuff he was doing when he was 65. It's just amazing how how much vitality he had. Wow, and I think of you as incredibly vital. Like you surfed your whole life and practiced your whole life, and that says a lot because I think of you as like a 40 year old person permanently. <laughs> <laughs> that made, that would make me older than you at this point. So clearly, you're not. <laughs> So did Mr. Yangar enjoy the lab experience? And, you know, do you have any anecdotes about, I would imagine that he had a pretty good sense of humor. Do you have any anecdotes about his, that side of his personality? Yes. First of all, yeah, he had this very severe persona inside the classroom, in which you, you know, very insistent that you do the poses exactly the way he said and so forth. And so he got a reputation for that. But outside the classroom, he, he laughed a lot. He had a great smile. Hmm. He was very sharp, you know, mentally. And, and, you know, usually the things he laughed about related to yoga, everything was uh, revolved about the, around the yoga. So I remember on a different Iyengar conference in the U.S. in San Diego, he came to San Diego where I live now, and we took him to the San Diego Zoo as a, just one of the events that we did. And he looked at the elephants and watched how carefully they placed their feet and, and how, you know, these giant animals, how... how well controlled and, and aware they were. And he, he said, there, can you step like that? Can you be so sensitive? And 
and things like that. So he would relate the yoga and he also sort of did a similar thing with the flamingo standing on one foot and made sort of a joke about it. So he liked to joke. He was not, you know, a prankster by any means. And, and no one dared play jokes on him because no mm -hmm. one wanted to find out what would happen. <laughs> but he was a wonderful man. Yeah. Actually, you know, and, and, and really, you know, one of the things I respect most about him is that he was wealthy, you know, relatively wealthy just from having written light on yoga, but he did not abuse it and he did not revel in, in the wealth for the wealth's sake. He was really dedicated to what he did. He, he really lived the principles as best he could. You know, he was human. He had his foibles for sure. And there's, I'm sure there are stories about him. I know there are stories about him doing things that people would not approve of, but he, he didn't fall into the trap that a lot of gurus fall into of, you know, abusing his students and, and doing, doing terrible things that some people do. Yeah. At his heart, he was very sincere, very honest really believed in what he was doing in, in a very idealistic sense. So yeah. I love, I still, still have a lot of respect for what he did. Yeah, that's so nice. When you were talking about his lung capacity, it reminded me of something that I came across in one of the interviews I was reading with you, where you talked about lung receptors. And I think what I read was that you have receptors in your lungs that when they're stimulated, they can, they can help stimulate relaxation. Is that correct? That is correct. That particular statement is, I believe it's true, but it's, it's an extrapolation. So what these receptors do is they're stretch sensors. And their job is that when you inhale fully, they say, okay, it's now it's time to exhale. You've inhaled enough. And the reason that I say that they're relaxation related is because, first of all, just from experience, when you take a deep breath, there's a sense of relaxation that comes at the top of the breath. Mm -hmm. But from the physiological standpoint, the sensors in the lungs send their signals along the vagus nerve, which is the primary nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system. And those signals go to a certain place in the brain, uh, in the brainstem. And there are other signals from the vagus nerve, uh, from the gut, from the heart, blood pressure sensors, that go to a similar area. And all those signals tend to, to be relaxing signals. And so from that, I extrapolated the the possibility, the probability that when you get this inflation reflex of stretching the lung receptors, the signals along the vagus nerve are also going to be relaxing to the brain because that's a the, the same thing happens in a lot of other ways you stimulate the vagus nerve. So, and is one of those ways also inversions? Yes, yes. When you invert, think about a about a headstand. Your rib cage is upside down, and if you look at the way the ribs are attached to the spine, there are little hinges. So that when you're inhaling, your ribs swing up towards your head. When you're exhaling, your ribs swing down towards your waist. So when you turn upside down in a headstand, the ribs are falling toward the floor. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they, they swing outward as if you inhaled. Mm -hmm. And when the ribs swing out, it increases the volume of the thoracic cavity, which stretches the lungs. And therefore, just by being upside down, you're already pre-stretching these stretch sensors, which, which uh, promote relaxation. And then if you inhale from that position, you're going to stretch those stretch sensors more than you would have had you just taken an ordinary inhalation. So you're stimulating the presumably relaxing stretch sensors in your lung just by going upside down and then enhancing it every time you inhale. And then what you're describing with, I never really thought about that with the ribcage, that essentially when you turn upside down, gravity is really assisting you in taking a deeper breath. Like if you're a that's, person who's struggling with the breath training, that that can be something where you find maybe find some ease. 
Yes and no. So this is this is uh, interesting because uh, anatomy and physiology can get complicated. Mm-hmm. When you turn upside down, your thoracic area expands more, so you get more air in because of that increase in volume. But your diaphragm muscle, which lies between the thoracic area and the, and the abdomen, your diaphragm essentially is, has the abdominal contents sitting on top of it like a weight. Oh, okay. And so yeah. your stomach <laughs> and your intestines and everything is pushing your diaphragm toward the floor, toward your head, which is actually promoting exhalation. So it's, the diaphragm in an inversion is promoting exhalation and the rib cage is promoting inhalation. So you end up somewhere in between. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I have a small child. She's still pretty small. She's just five. And I have been told over the years that if your child is having a really bad tantrum, you should turn them upside down. Have you ever heard about that? Heard of that advice? I haven't, but it sounds like (laughs) great advice to me. I think it's really great advice. I mean, unfortunately, I heard it sort of after she was like when she was through her tantrum phase. Yeah. Oh, it's too bad. I know. But I really, it makes total sense to me. I mean, for lots of different potential reasons, right? I mean, it could even just be like waking them up, flipping their perspectives, just visually changes things and jars them back into kind of a normal state. But I was, when I first read the thing about the lung receptors, I thought, oh, I wonder if that could potentially help with that as well. And also, you know, Sophia, we model yoga for her. We always don't, like nobody makes their little tiny child do yoga. But the only thing she's really interested in doing is going upside down, like handstands with with daddy. That's the only thing she wants to do. (laughs) And I think it must just be because it feels so good. You know, it feels good. The child's beautiful intuition that you do things that that make you feel better, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's, I think that's really the source of, of yoga, of asana, certainly. Yeah. Is, is yeah. That, that childlike just wonder and immediacy of, wow, if I do this, it's really neat. It really, it really feels good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah. So if we're talking about inverting for just a little bit longer, and then we'll talk about the barrel reflex. If we have the desire, let's say we're home and we're going to do a practice, we want to focus on, narrowly focus on, on stimulating the parasympathetic response with inversions. What kind of approach would you suggest? I would imagine that, you know, holding a headstand for however long you can, whatever amount of time is appropriate for you, or, or holding an inversion is going to have a more relaxing effect than coming up and coming down. Is that a correct assumption? That's correct. So let me put it in a big framework. If you want to get a good parasympathetic response, if you want, if you go out for a long run or do a very vigorous practice, it's going to be sympathetic and it's going to activate you. However, at some point, some hours later, when that all calms down, you'll have a great parasympathetic response naturally. So mm-hmm. we have to look at the whole thing holistically. But in the immediate practice, at the time of practice, you don't want to be going up and down a lot because that requires a lot of muscle activity, which is stimulating. It also requires a lot of brain activity. You're, you're focusing and thinking. And so you want to be upside down and stable and still and, and making as few adjustments as possible. Now, here's where the, the equanimity is yoga comes back in. So I've been experiencing this lately. Iyengar did very long headstands. When he was in his 90s, he would stand on his head for half an hour. Wow. And it was just amazing. And I remember when I was in my 20s, I remember standing on my head for half an hour once or twice as a thing, you know, how long can they do it? I was in a, in a group setting. Yeah. And it was interesting, but it was difficult. It was very challenging. And then so for years, I just said, yeah, I'm just going to stand on my head for a couple of minutes because these long headstands, you know, there's, there's really not, you know, it's not worth it 
to do it because you can hurt your neck and yeah. so on. But at some point, and this is in recent years, I started just working with the headstand and finding that if I tried to stay for a longer time, I had to find a better balance because, you know, when I was young, I would just kind of push through it and hurt myself and so on and, and recover. And as I get older, it's like, you, I can't afford to do that anymore. I have mm-hmm. to be very precise. And what I learned was that the way to do a long headstand is to learn how to balance really precisely and not move and have a really exquisitely fine alignment. And when you get there, you're just still and you have no desire to move. And then the practice of a long pose is one of being present in the moment. You're not thinking about the clock or how much longer you have. You think about how wonderful it is to be right here, right now, exactly balanced. And all I'm focused on 100% is just keeping the alignment. Mm-hmm. And so that's a meditation, mm-hmm. and it also prevents the the damage that one could do by you know getting out of alignment and, and hurting something. And then the inversion itself starts to have physiological effects, which start to build up and build up without interruption, because these parasympathetic responses are easily reversed or interrupted. And so you want to be in a position that's undisturbed and be there for a long time. Now, a headstand, if you can do it in a headstand, it's great. It's a really magical experience. But a headstand inevitably requires more physical effort than, say, a shoulder stand Mm -hmm. because of just the structure of it. And a headstand or shoulder stand is more physically effortful if it's done freestanding than a supported inversion. So if you really want to get the deep, deep parasympathetic effects, you want to have your inversion be propped and you want to stay in it for a very long time Mm -hmm. because the as I said, a lot of the chemistry of, of relaxation just takes time to unfold. Mm-hmm. Do you still practice shoulder stand? Oh, yes. Do you do like a whole chair propping? What's your sort of, you don't have to describe it in total detail, but what, what's like your prop, prop situation of choice for shoulder stand? So if I'm going to do a supported shoulder stand, I do it with a chair. Mm-hmm. And I usually use my feet on the wall as well. And I mm-hmm. certainly, I still do, I do a lot of active shoulder stands and just get, just get as balanced as possible in them because they're, if you do the pose well, you can stay in it for a long time. The chair shoulder stand is special. And the thing about these props, this is another thing about understanding Iyengar and alignment and so on, is that the props are there to achieve the, the effect, to achieve the result. They're not there just because you're supposed to use a certain prop. The way the chair is used, the way the wall is used, is all geared toward getting stable, comfortable, and still, and you can stay there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so whatever you do whatever it takes to make that happen. Yeah. Would you mind snapping a picture of yourself with your prop, props, and I'll, I'll, I can put it up on the show notes page and people can see it? I already have the picture. I'll send, I know which okay. one I'll send to you. <laughs> great, great. I do like a, the simplest set up ever, which is I just put a block under my pelvis and bring my legs up, you know, and it just feels so good. But I do remember when I did use the chair, how amazing that felt too. It felt so good to use the chair. It's a good thing for people to have in their toolkit. It is. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I spend a lot of time, I teach a lot of uh, how to practice restorative yoga, how to set up the poses, because there is a a great magic to it. So if you take the pose you described in which you elevate your pelvis on a block, it's sort of a Viparita Karani-like mm-hmm. thing without a wall, maybe. Yep. It's great. It's great. You feel you feel that wonderful effect and you stay and you stay. And the reason you come down is not because it ceased to be a restful pose at its foundation, but because some part of the pose is not restful. You're having to hold your legs up or something. Mm-hmm. And so if you just imagine starting there and saying, well, how could I, how could I avoid 
that thing that made me come down? Or what if I put my heels on the wall? And then you mm-hmm. do that for a while and they say, well, I stayed and stayed. But what got me out of the pose is the block eventually started to feel kind of hard on my back. So what if I put a blanket on top of the block? Okay, then you do that. And then you stay there for longer. And then you say, wait, my heels are on the wall. My heels are the thing that felt hard on the wall. And so you put a blanket over your feet or you put something to padding between your heels and the wall. And if you practice that way, you can build up restorative asanas that you can stay in for a really long time. And that's, mm. that makes, it has a great effect. That's nice. So it's all kind of, if you know a basic setup, you can kind of continue to tune in. Like you said, why is this making me want to come out and then make an adjustment with the prop and see how that feels and then tune in again. Okay. Well, why is this? That's, I like that. So you can kind of personalize it according to, yeah, what's going on for you. And then maybe even share it with your students. Another uh, technique that you've talked a lot about recently, or it's not a technique, but a a reflex is the barrel reflex. So I'm going to encourage people to go online and watch your short video about the barrel reflex. And I'll put a link to it on the show notes page as well. It's really helpful. But I think we could actually even just give people an overview it here as well. Absolutely. First, first, I want to spell it because on audio, it's a little hard to understand. It's B as in boy, A-R-O, reflex. Okay. The sensors in your body that drive this reflex are called baroreceptors. And they're just sensory nerves that pick up a signal. And the signal that they pick up is physically is stress. And the meaning of the signal is blood pressure. So let me explain what that means. If you take two fingers and put them on your neck, and find your pulse, just one side, that point you're touching typically on your neck is your carotid artery. And it's a place in the carotid artery where those baroreceptors are located. They're inside the artery walls. And what they're doing is every time a pulse of pressure comes through, you don't have to leave your fingers there, but every time a pulse of pressure comes through, these sensors are being stretched and they're sending nerve signals up to your brain. And they're telling you how high the blood pressure is because the degree of stretch is related to the degree of pressure. Because your brain is above your heart, your heart has to push the blood uphill to the brain and it needs to push with a certain amount of pressure to nourish your brain with blood. And so the brain you know, doesn't, doesn't like to get deprived of blood supply. So there's a sensor at the gateway to the brain and in the neck, always monitoring the pressure. So if the pressure gets too low, the signals to your brain get weaker and your brain knows, oh, I better speed up the heart. And it it sends signals down to speed up the heart. And that increases your pressure again. But the baroreflex uh, that I'm talking about is the opposite branch of it. The opposite side of it, I should say, is if you go from standing up or sitting up to lying down, the pressure increases in your neck. The baroreceptors send more signals to your brain and that says the pressure is high. Mm -hmm. And therefore, your heart can relax because your heart doesn't have to work so hard to push blood up to your brain anymore because you're lying down. So this basic reflex has been known for a long time. It's known as a heart reflex. It also affects other things, but the heart is the thing that is most well known. So if you lie down, your heart slows down. That's the baroreflex. 
But what most scientists even and doctors don't realize is that there's a parallel branch of the baroreflex that does the same thing essentially to your brain as it does to your heart. In other words, in situations that make your heart speed up, it causes your brain to become more alert and your brain waves literally speed up. Hmm. And in situations that cause the heart to slow down, it makes your brain slow down. And we can experience this. We do experience this every day. Every time you lie down, there's a change in pressure in your neck, an increase in pressure, and you feel more relaxed. That feeling you get when you lie down is not just because you're relaxing your muscles, although that does contribute. That feeling of rest you get when you lie down is the baroreflex in, in large part. I ask one question, interject one question. So when your brain is calming down, is it responding directly to the heart or is it responding as well to the baroreflex? Oh, that's a very good question. No, it's it's responding to the baroreflex. So so imagine there are nerve signals coming from your neck to your brain and they're saying the pressure is high and then the, the pressure signal is picked up by the nerves that control the heart. And it's also picked up by nerves that control the speed oh, wow. of your brain. And they're separate, okay. they're separate clusters of nerves, but they're, they're both attached to the same input. Mm-hmm. So the same signal comes in and it's interpreted in, in, or, or acted upon in two different ways. Well, actually many different ways in your brain. And those are just two of them. Uh, so the brain says, okay, send signals down to the heart, tell it to slow down. Send signals up to the br- cerebral cortex, tell it to slow down. So cool. And what's also cool, this was just the key insight that, you know, I, I got long ago, not Again, I didn't discover this baroreflex effect on the brain, but what I learned was that scientists had been studying this for a long time. And what the scientists were doing was not only looking at sitting up, lying down type of things, but they were electrically stimulating the blood pressure sensors and doing different things, mechanically stimulating them. And you can get the brain to slow down very quickly and much faster than what ordinarily occurs when you lie down by increasing the stimulus to the baroreceptors beyond what they normally experience in everyday life. In other words, if you go upside down and you increase pressure in your neck much more than it usually experiences in daily life, those sensors will send a very strong signal to the brain, your heart will slow down very quickly, and your brain slows down more quickly and more deeply. So the key insight is if you go upside down, it supercharges the relaxing effect of the baroreceptors on your brain. Right. So in an inversion situation where you're going, you're, you know, your pelvis is lifting up above your heart, you're at a more steep incline. You're more upside down <laughs> than you are if you're just yeah, laying more. there. That should stimulate a more relaxed, like it should slow your heartbeat down and then it should also slow your bra- brain waves down. Yes. And I want to clarify two things about that that are important to understand. The first is it's the most important factor is how high is your heart above your neck, okay. not how high your hips are. Okay. The, hips, the hips above the heart is also helpful. So don't discount that. But if the inversion uh, the, from the, the distance from the heart to the neck, the vertical distance is a key factor. Mm. Uh, the other thing is that the baroreflex doesn't act in isolation. It is possible to lie down and be very alert. Imagine you, you lie down on a weightlifting bench and lift weights. You don't, mm. It may be a little relaxing to lie down, but the baroreflex is not going to knock you out. Right. So the baroreflex can be overcome by countervailing stimulation. So if, you try, if you're active and lying down, and, and, and upside down, it's much less relaxing than being passive and upside down, for example. Okay, yes. So this relates to the inversions we were just talking to, but you've actually talked about it in relationship to 
restorative poses because you make the point that, like you said, you need to be, you actually need to be passive to really get the full benefits. That's right. That's right. So if you're, if you're looking for a maximum relaxation response, what you want to do is gang up a lot of factors that promote relaxation. The baroreflex is, is a big one because it affects so many systems. It even affects your breathing, by the way. It slows down your breathing, among other things. But it doesn't act in isolation. So get the big picture here. Your parasympathetic nervous system is not the only part of your nervous system that relaxes you. It is the parasympathetic system you can think of as helping you slow down and quiet your circulatory system and slow down and increase things like digestion and do a few other things like to your eyes and so forth. But the relaxation response involves relaxing through the, through the parasympathetic system being activated and by a, an opposing system, the sympathetic system being deactivated. But there are separate systems many separate systems that are involved in relaxation. The most obvious one is the musculoskeletal system, which is not sympathetic or parasympathetic. It's supported by the parasympathetic systems, but the muscles are an independent system and the nerves that control them are independent. So physically relaxing your muscles and relaxing those parts of your brain that make you move around is, is of course, a part of relaxation. Mm-hmm. Another part of re- relaxation is dealing with what's called the well, the HPA axis, which has to do with a, uh, a hormone called cortisol, and cortisol is a stress hormone. So when you feel emotionally distressed and, and some other kinds of distress, you get a lot of cortisol in your system, and that has a lot of activating effects on your body and indirectly on your brain uh, that are not baroreflex related or sympathetic or parasympathetic. It's all, there's a separate activating system that's called the HPA axis. There are emotional systems in your brain that sort of turn on all the other systems that make you active. So the idea of restorative yoga and deep relaxation is you take into account not just one of these systems, but as many of them as you can lay hold of, and you set up the conditions for relaxation which minimize stimulation and maximize soothing effect. That makes total sense. Just, sometimes I just marvel at these things that are so obvious and right underneath our noses, but just that we forget in the busyness of everyday life. Yes, that's right. That makes total sense. So I'm just thinking about people listening out there. And I will say that teachers will still often incorporate like one restorative pose at the end of a class. So if you're thinking about trying to stimulate the barrel reflex, it would make more sense to then do a, a restorative pose that like you said, the heart is above the neck rather than just like, say, Supta Baddha Konasana, which is kind of a go-to pose for everyone. So the in the video, you demonstrate Satu Banda on two blocks. Are there any others? That what seems like that would be the main effective one, but yeah. So first of all, every yoga class typically ends with Shavasana, which is a restorative pose. And it's, although it's not inverted, it does stimulate the baroreceptors. So, so we're already doing that. Mm-hmm. We're already stimulating the baroreceptors every time we lie on Shavasana. And even though it's not an inversion, it's pretty good. Likewise, Supta Baddha Konasana, although it's not a complete inversion, it's, it's lying down enough, it's not an inversion at all, actually, it's horizontal enough to partially stimulate the baroreflex, and it's a very relaxing pose. But let's suppose you have a brief time at the end of class and you want to get slightly faster relaxation, then you'd want to go to an inversion that is mild enough to be restful but strong enough to stimulate the baroreceptors. So the two that come to mind are Viparita Karani, which is legs up the wall pose, and uh, supported Setu Bandha Sarvangasana. 
So not the active version that I show in the video, but the passive version where you're fully supported. So those are the, those are two easy ones to do. Mm-hmm. And remember that you, know, you could just lie with legs up the wall and the body horizontal, but that does not bring the heart above the neck. So it mm-hmm. doesn't really maximize the effect. So Vipri Dakrani, where the pelvis is elevated and the chest is lifted. So not so some people do Vipri Dakrani and they let their chest kind of flatten out toward the floor, but you really want the, the hips up, which allows you to get your shoulders rolled under and your chest up, which lifts up your heart. And then you get your legs up, which is an additional effect. And as long as you can do it in a way that you don't have to hold your legs up, that's probably the fastest way to use a baroreflex to relax quickly. The problem with Vipurita Karani, if you're a teacher, is that a lot of students don't get comfortable and they get it wrong and they're fidgeting and all that's not relaxing. Yeah. The easiest pose, go-to pose is supported bridge pose, supported setubanda, which is on very low props, by the way, because if you make it too high, people's back starts back start to hurt so oh right if you're holding it yeah so so there's some, some technique involved here supported situ banda done exactly the right way with and it can be done fairly quickly you just have to learn the technique it's probably my favorite pose in all of yoga because it's just so effective and so quick mm-hmm. and I, I do that all the time in my own practice i, I will just i have a brief time to rest shavasana is always of course useful but Supportive set to bond is my go-to pose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna try it. I'm definitely a Viparita Karani gal myself. But you're right; it can be hard to get into and out of. Like if people are accustomed to it, it's great. But to have to teach it in the midst of a class like that might be kind of a little more challenging. But if I was going to do it, so I usually do it with my the back of my pelvis on a bolster. Uh-huh. Could I then add like a little? folded blanket under my shoulder blades to lift the chest a little bit too? Or would just the bolster? No, that's not quite exactly what you want. What you want is the chest rolled open, shoulders under, as if you were in oh, shoulder stand. Okay, okay, okay. If you remember, and this is important to understand when we do these restorative poses, is they're derived from classical poses which have the maximum effect. So uh-huh. if you do a full shoulder stand and your chest is vertical, straight up and down, and if you are BKS Iyengar, you can then drop your feet back into a backbend behind you and straighten your legs and be propped up and not, not drop your chest at all. And that's, that's the actual alignment, the ideal alignment for Setu Banda mm-hmm. as far as lifting the chest and so on. So what we do with our props, mere mortals can't get into that position. Mm-hmm. So we have to prop up and only get as close as we can. But we're going toward that idea of the chest being fully lifted. Right. The other thing about that is, is remember that these poses have multiple effects. So you get a lung stretching effect by combining the inversion and the back bend, which stretches the lungs even more than just headstand does. So going back to our previous conversation about lung stretch receptors being relaxation stimuli, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Setubanda the opening of the chest in Setubanda and Vipurita Karani, but especially Setubanda, does that lung stretching thing on the inhalations as well. So and it, it does a baroreflex and, and a lung stretching reflex. And, and if you're comfortable and, and supported, it lets you relax your muscles. And if you give the right suggestions, you know, you can relax your emotions and so on. So it's a full service mm-hmm. restorative pose when, when you start adding in all the elements to it. Yeah. And then I was just thinking as I was looking at all this information, obviously the contraindications for 
for doing these poses would be similar to the contraindications for inversions. Is there any added risk for people, let's say with high blood pressure, because you're kind of, I don't know, it just seems like with the the, the steeper <laughs> incline of the head over the neck, I was wondering if there are any additional contraindications. I would say not really. I mean, the, the contraindications for inversion have to do with the pressure increases causing some sort of damage or the mechanical effect of the pose on your neck or on, on your muscles. So it's mainly, those are the main two things. Also in the eyes, the eyes also, the pressure effects on the eyes. So really it's, does the inversion put too much pressure on your neck and your head, blood pressure, fluid pressure, or does it overstretch something or overstress a bone or something like that? And so those contraindications for inversions, like for people who've had strokes and people who've had uh, uh, heart attacks and things like that are, are the same. And osteoporosis, the glaucoma, those sorts of things, they're the same for, for working with the baroreceptors. And it's just that when you're really trying to lift the heart up above the chest, up above the neck, I should say, you do tend to flex your neck more. And so you have to be mm-hmm. more careful of the, the neck thing. So you can't lose sight of the, the mechanical body when you're going for the physiological effect of mm. getting your, your heart in place to, to increase pressure in your, in your baroreceptors. The only other thing I'd say that's sort of specific to baroreceptors is if you have atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, and you have this plaque built up, it often builds up in the carotid arteries. And of course, you don't want to break the, the plaque loose because it will go into your brain. Mm. But there's nothing specific about the things that stimulate the baroreceptors, that's different than any other inversion in that regard. If you were to be doing something like rubbing on your carotid arteries, that would be a special risk factor, but that's not part of the yoga practice. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Oh, well, that that being said, since some people do this, um, don't rub both carotid arteries at once because it can make people faint. Oh, wow. Then the other thing I'll say is that, is that a, a hazard of deep relaxation, you don't think of it having a whole lot of hazards. There are two that I can think of. One is your blood pressure can often get so low that when you stand up, some people with low blood pressure will faint Mm -hmm. and have a fall. So Mm -hmm. that's one. So you have to get up slowly. Not a huge risk factor. Sometimes if you get into a restorative pose, it's so relaxing. You'll stay there for half an hour or something like that. And if it's something that does some sort of backbend or puts a lot of pressure on one spot, you could have some sort of musculoskeletal effect or loss of circulation. It's it's not usually not, doesn't cause any permanent problem, but you wake up and the skin is numb in some part of your body because you've just laid there so long right. in one position without moving. So there is a risk of being there forever in a pose, especially if you're twisting yourself or moving yourself into some odd position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, ha- you have to be very careful. You know, alignment matters in mm-hmm. these restorative poses. It li- matters a lot. Yeah. So when you set them up, you're still doing an asana and you still pay attention to alignment a, a great deal. And that's very important. Right. So I would love to know, as our last question, you know, what is your practice like these days? You have lots of different components and you've always been really physically active. I mean, I mentioned that you've been surfing for a long time. How do you fit it all in and, and how, how is it different from day to day? Uh, okay, so it, it does differ a fair amount from day to day. First of all, it's been a real blessing to me to keep teaching because it makes me practice. So I'm going to teach mm-hmm. a class, I, I better practice. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really motivating because I'm not that disciplined otherwise. Oh, I can easily get dis- disciplined doing something else. Mm-hmm. Academic, or I sit at my desk. I've been actually in the recent weeks, I've been sitting at my desk a lot. And, and then what happens is I get up and, you know, my back starts to hurt or something. And I say, I'm just going to do a 
a standing pose or two, and I do one or two poses, and suddenly I'm in it. Now I have to do more. I have to do more because it feels so good. So mm-hmm. uh, my practice, I rotate between uh, standing poses, back bends, forward bends, seated poses, inversions, twists, and you know most practices have a, a variety of poses, but I usually have an emphasis on one or the other. Mm-hmm. And then res- restorative happens in two ways. Usually by the end, at the end of my active practice, I do some restorative. I do something restorative. And sometimes if I have a lot of time, I'll do a long restorative practice then. But I also take the time, and I, I, it, this takes discipline, believe it or not, to just set aside an hour, two hours to just do restorative poses. I try to do it once a week. I don't always make manage it, but just a long restorative practice is dedicated to getting into the state of deepest rest. Hmm. And the reason the reason is because active practice alone is very helpful, but activity requires rest in order to complete its benefits. So just like a person who wants to be a bodybuilder and they lift weights every day, they have to take days off for those muscles to regrow and to get stronger and bigger. So when we do an active asana practice, we also need to take time for a passive quiet practice for the, the full effect of those asanas to sort of be incorporated into our, our physical structure and into our nervous system. So the long restorative practice is sort of a reset that, that I like to do uh, periodically. Yeah, that inspires me. It's been a long time since I've done a long restorative practice, but you know, there's nothing like it. That and a long meditation session, there's really nothing like it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Roger. I'm so happy to reconnect with you. And I mean, this information is incredibly helpful. Do you, did I miss anything? Is there anything else you want to add? I think we've covered uh, enough for, for one <laughs> session, of course. You know, at the end, you mentioned meditation and and uh, we didn't really touch on pranayama. And those are topics for in the whole other half hour of well, discussion. Well, if you so. ever want to come back, Yoga Land is here. <laughs> We'd love to have you back. All right. Okay. All right. Thank Very you. Good. Well, I appreciate it. It's great to reconnect with you too. So take care. Thanks so much for listening. Again, you can find photos of Roger and links to videos, including a link to the video where he explains the barrow reflex at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 78. And today in the United States, it's Giving Tuesday. We had Black Friday and we had Cyber Monday where you may have enjoyed some sales. Giving Tuesday is a day where you're encouraged to donate to charity. So just remember every little amount makes a difference in this internet age where we can all reach each other and harness that power of numbers. Even the cost of your cup of coffee could go to a good cause. Until next week, enjoy your practice.